are listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self. I'm your host, Lamar Legend, and today we have Kathy Shu. Kathy is a theater producer and an award-winning actor, writer, and director. She is one of the founders and co-executive producers for CIS Productions, an Asian-American women-led theater company recognized by Audrey Magazine as a theater trailblazer. She is also the racial equity and grant-making strategist for the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, helping the agency earn the Seattle Management Association's first Race and Social Justice Management Award in 2007. She is a frequent racial equity presenter and advisor throughout the U.S. and Canada, with a specific focus on how the arts and cultural sector can evolve to become more racially equitable. She has been honored by the National Association of Asian American Professionals in Seattle as their Artist of the Year, a special award of recognition by the Seattle Theater Writers' Gypsy Awards for Excellence in Playwriting, Verizon's Asian Pacific American Bashes Innovator Award, and an International Examiner Community Voice Awardee in the Arts, a Theater Puget Sound Gregory Award for Sustained Achievement in Theater, a Seattle Chinese American Citizens Alliance's Fred Yee Citizens Award, 1448's Glenn Mazin Award, and Footlight and Gypsy Awards for her acting. As a playwright, she has been recognized by the Dramatist magazine as 50 to Watch. Her scripts have been produced and workshopped in Vancouver, B.C., Minneapolis, and Chicago, and include 14 scripts for the critically acclaimed, long-running, episodic Asian-American rom-com Sex in Seattle. As a teacher, she's taught an Asian-American theater class for the University of Washington School of Drama, And soon, you can hear her voice in Book It Rep's radio production of The Three Musketeers, adapted and directed by some fool they call Lamar Legend. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, it is so good to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Except I realize hearing a a bio out loud makes me think I'm attending my own funeral. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That was not a eulogy. That was a praise, a celebration. (laughs) Although I can understand how you would feel that way, how anyone would feel that way. It's like, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) So let's kick off with how did your relationship with theater begin? Uh, Um. If about the very first part uh, that I ever got to play on stage would be I got to play a star uh, when I was uh, um, uh, in a Christmas pageant, not like the play, the Christmas pageant, but in a real Christmas pageant um, in my, uh, uh, I guess it was uh, like a, it was a private school. So it was, it was like I was five um, at the time. Um, and the reason why it was so funny is because my family, the only reason why I ended up in that private Christian school was because my family, my parents are immigrants here from China. And they didn't know that there was a thing of free public schools. And the closest school to where we lived happened to be this private Christian school. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was my first experience. Um, um, and all I did was have to stand there holding a cutout of a star. I wasn't even the star in the pageant. I was just one of the many stars. <laughs> so no lines, no nothing, just stand there holding a star. Um, but if I, if I was to like uh, attribute the first kind of taste uh, uh, for, for theater was I was so shy in elementary school, very introverted. Um, my best friend, Carla Cunningham, um, 
for the final talent show of the school year as sixth graders uh, at Sacagawea Elementary here in Seattle. Um, she wanted to do a sketch, um, and it was just a few minute sketch, and she wanted me to play the teacher in the sketch. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Uh, but she she insisted. Um, and so I got to play the teacher, and I had like three lines um, and the punchline, uh, and, uh, and everyone laughed, and they could actually hear me. And it was like, wow, like... That was like amazing because I was so shy and introverted that the year before in fifth grade, the school actually did an all school play about the history of the United States in an hour. Um, and everyone in the school had a part except for me because the teachers weren't sure I would be loud enough uh, or would feel comfortable enough speaking in front of everybody. Um, so, so yeah, so that was... Well, you showed them. Yeah, that, that kind of <laughs> became my thing. Do you remember when uh, and could you describe um, the first time you like engaged with theater outside of acting? Like what was the first show you might have seen or yeah, yeah. made you go like, hey, that's something I want to do? Yeah, actually, um, uh, I'll share a, a little. The, when I first thought like, wow, I actually love doing doing this um, was in freshman year at Nathan Hill High School. I was actually in the first freshman class that Nathan Hill ever had. Uh, our language arts teacher insisted that everyone in the class had to audition for the school play. And it was a Neil Simon comedy. I'd never read a play before. I didn't know anything about plays because that sketch was one thing, but this was like a, a real play. And he just basically said, oh, here's just like a little scene. And all you have to do is just read it in front of everyone. And I loved reading. So, so and he made everyone audition. Um, and so went in, read it, auditioned, and I got to be the first freshman at Nathan Hale High School uh, to actually get cast in a production. Uh, and it was it was amazing because all the rest of the cast were mostly seniors um, and juniors. And they were also helpful in teaching me like things like downstage and upstage and like how to project. And so everyone was so supportive um, that it kind of broke the stereotype of seniors like just penalizing freshmen. Um, and I love the collaborative spirit of doing the thing. So I got to do theater and read my first script through that process, but I had not, never seen a show before. Um, my parents, again, were immigrants, so we didn't go see plays. We did go see a lot of films, mostly Chinese films growing up, but not plays. And so then, then my next, uh, uh, in high school, my my language arts teacher, Mr. Ketter, he cast me in the next show, which was A Midsummer Night's Dream. So that was my first taste of Shakespeare. And then, um, and then I continued to do high school plays. And it wasn't until I was uh, near the end of my sophomore year where I thought, you know, I really love this, but our school only did like one or two shows a year and I wanted to do it more. And I, so I started doing some research and found out that there was a children's theater and they actually uh, were doing a summer program um, where you were well, actually, it wasn't a summer program, it was a spring program. So spring quarter and um, where 
you could audition and if you got cast, you could actually uh, uh, be a part of a class that would produce the show. Um, so I took two buses and it took me like two and a half hours to get to the Seattle Children's Theater. That was back when it was back at the zoo. And, um, and I auditioned for the show and got cast. And what they, it was a fabulous um, experience. Um, and what they allowed was that if you were part of the show, they said, you can get free tickets to see our main stage show. And I was like, oh, I've never seen a show before. Sure. And so I saw um, the tic- the show that they were doing at the time was called The Snow Crane's Wife. I think that was what it was called. And it was a Chinese folktale, oh, um, wow. an Asian folktale. And so the whole cast were people who looked like me. Wow. And it blew my mind because... I, A, I was seeing a show for the first time and having it be a show where everyone looked like me, I was blown away. I just didn't even know that that was possible. Um, and so, so I just remember thinking like, I, you mean this could be something that's not just for a class or not just as part of school um, and just a learning thing to do for fun, but it could actually be something that I could actually possibly do as a career um, mm-hmm. and then I was fortunate because our school did get uh, free tickets to um, uh, uh, the Seattle rep offered free tickets to a production that they were doing on their main stage of Taming of the Shrew so I got wow. to see my first Shakespeare um, and again was just so blown away and then after that the the Seattle rep actually had a partnership with our school where we got to see a lot of their shows for free for the you know my junior and senior years um, and so it was just really mind blowing to realize like there are actually people who did this as a living. That's fantastic. That's just fantastic. Wow. I mean, it's rare <laughs> when someone can point to an experience where they see themselves at a very young age represented on stage uh, as a person of color um, for, I mean, in an array, like in a in a cast, like a where everyone looks like yeah. you. <laughs> and I didn't realize how rare that was that first time I saw it <laughs> until I started seeing. Uh, uh, this is back then at the rep. The rep has gotten much better, obviously, since then. But of course. Until I saw all the other shows that the rep was offering us tickets to, another part of the forest, and um, and uh, like I said, taming the shoe, and and all the actors there were all white and so I never got to see myself reflected again <laughs> until um, um, I, I actually auditioned for another show uh, directed by Dr. Tanya Pettiford Waits um, uh, and it was a production of Flower Drum Song and I auditioned specifically for that because it was and that was my first professional audition outside the children's theater um, and that was when we're they needed a whole cast of Asian Americans so I thought I, I could actually stand a chance. topic then um, because I don't think this gets enough airplay but let's talk about Flower Drum Song if you will will you tell us your thoughts on it because it is a controversial piece period (laughs) and I believe that every Asian um, Asian American um, artist from an immigrant background has an opinion on, on that very 
play, um, musical. Do you? And if so, what is it? Yeah. So, I mean, realize that I was just uh, 17, I think, when I auditioned for Flower Drum Song. And it was because, like I said, the, the casting call, this was Civic Light Opera, the ca- and the, the theater was performing right across the street from my high school. And and it was directed by a Black woman. And I thought, this is a production where they are looking specifically for Asian Americans. So I auditioned and got cast and was in this cast full of all BIPOC people, majority Asian American. They did flesh it out uh, with uh, some other performers of color. And um, and so because I think the, the cast and the director were all people of color. I think I had a very different experience with it than um, most people might, but I knew after that first rehearsal. So we, we did a first read through and there were three Asian American actors after that first read through where they dropped out. They were Asian American men and they dropped out. And, and, and so that's when I understood like, Oh, this is, (laughs) there's controversy over this. And it was because, you know, it was, it's the, musical itself was developed even with the best of intentions. I mean, it was done because um, Rodgers and Hammerstein really wanted to reflect a greater diversity. I mean, they were really groundbreaking in a lot of the work that they did as white men um, in a time period in the 50s of uh, really trying to uh, diversify what musical theater was in America at that time. Mm-hmm. So, but while they were being ground making, they, they were white men who only had a lens from their perspective. And so, uh, the original source material was actually written by a Chinese American person. So if you go to the original source material, there's a lot that really resonates in the Asian American, Chinese American community specifically. And mm-hmm. I know like a lot of, um, um, my like my husband's grandparents it was their favorite musical because they felt like A, they got to see themselves reflected and it dealt with generations of people that look like them and the original source material was from a Chinese American perspective As a 17-year-old doing my first professional show, um, I I was still in high school at the time and getting to work with an entire cast of Asian American people. And I've only recently realized how transformational it was to do that production um, with Dr. Tanya Pettiford-Waits as the director, because I realized that one of the things she taught me, and this really led to how my career in theater has evolved, is she really taught me um, and all of us in the cast to use our voice uh, Mm. because she, as a black woman, she felt like, you know, as a black woman, she could definitely center the production in a way to make sure that it was centering our BIPOC experience. But she admitted she wasn't Chinese American. So she needed and trusted all of us in the cast and all the artists working on it to let her know to create awareness for any of the biases she might have mm. about us as Asian Americans. So what was your experience like when you went to undergrad and when you went to college and you were um, thrust into, well, basically that supremacists culture of 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 art making yeah it was interesting because the very first well well i will say like the 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 show that i did the children's theater uh 
even though the director was a white male, uh, Bruce K. Seavey, who I adore, um, he went on to Denver Center and a lot of other theaters around town before he went to Denver. Um, and Chad Henry, his partner, uh, was the musical director for uh, the show at the Children's Theater. It was The Runaways by Elizabeth Swatos. And in that production, I think they they were also just also because they were doing it as teaching artists, but I think because they were, um, you know, they're gay, uh, and, uh, because they really did the production really centering it in a way that was really about, um, those of us who don't quite fit in the runaways is about young teens who run away from home because you don't feel like you fit into the world that you've been brought into. And so it was really centered with that philosophy. And then then at the UW, my first few directors were all female directors. Um, and so I had this whole slew of working with directors who were identified um, in different uh, identities that were... Uh, considered, you know, whether it's gender, sexual orientation, or race, mm. were people who are often not in the um, uh, the top of the hierarchy in our societal sure. structure here in this country. So mm. the first time that I actually got to be directed by a white male cisgendered uh, director, male director, it was the first time where, wow, <laughs> this is very different. And he was also a director that was brought up in his training where the actors are basically living props. So he was one where, and it was, I, I got to play Ariel in The Tempest and it was at the University of Washington. And he was one of those directors where he literally choreographed Every single movement we did, um, every, the intonation of how we said that, like every little thing. Um, so literally, and I remember at one point I was so frustrated because I'd never had a director like that before. I was so frustrated uh, that uh, that that I I, I actually uh, uh, went to him and said, I feel like. I, I could be anybody like you could have cast anybody in this role because I, I don't feel like we're having a dialogue in terms of what, what is my input in the creation of this role. And I don't think he quite understood, uh, but I, I remember being very emotional when I went to him um, to share that, you know, and I ended up, you were taught to listen to the director and follow direction, but I, I did have to like go to him and, and share that perspective with him because I, I just felt so frustrated and like I really wasn't an artist in that space um, um, so that was my first time working with a white male director since there's been a lot of fabulous white male directors that I've worked with who are straight you know cisgendered male directors but but that first experience was really eye-opening for me in terms of the contrast yeah so in I mean it, it, you've described how in your early beginnings as a as a theater maker and as a as an artist you were fostered in this culture of of equitability and equanimity and um being vocal and being an advocate for yourself as an actor which is so rare <laughs> even to this day um would you attribute that uh you're you're in that situation with that director in the tempest um, being able to have the gumption to go up to your, your director and to speak about your working relationship, um, would you attribute that to how you were raised and fostered within the community? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Like I said, it was only really recently in this last year and a half that I realized how much I learned just from being in the room with Dr. Tanya Pettiford Waits as my first um, uh, professional director, uh, and. And I do feel that because of the way that she set the room and the space um, for us to have a voice, and then I had a lot of great experiences with, um, uh, you know, a number of female directors uh, uh, between her um, and and um, the one that I had that was more problematic. That I knew that there was, like, if my first director had been the one that I had in the Tempest. I would have grown up thinking like, oh, that's the way things are.、Mm. Um, so I was very fortunate, and I had other experiences first to con- contrast with the one that was problematic, and and so part of it was just because I had these other examples of ways that were much more human centered and collaborative, and and allowed us to have a voice in the rehearsal space, and for us all to bring our creative, artistic sensibilities into the room,、um, and then of course the director will shape all of that into a vision that encompasses all of that. Um, but because I'd had those wonderful experiences first, I was able to know that this this one situation where I was in was did not feel right, and and it gave me the courage to be able to know that this was not necessarily the way things had to be. So you told us that your first interaction with Shakespeare—correct me if I'm wrong—was、um, as Titania, the Queen of the Fairies, in *A Midsummer Night's Dream*. Actually, for that production,、oh. I was、uh, uh, Peas Blossom. Ah, in high school, one of, one of her fairies, one of her train. Yes.、Um, and、uh, then you later got to see at the Rep your first production, Shakespeare production of *The Taming of the Shrew*. Yes. So you told me. That you have a secret about <laughs> Shakespeare.、Uh, will you let us know or let us in? Yes. So、okay. <laughs> this is a secret I have kept、uh, to myself for years and years and years because I was afraid to tell anyone.、Um, but I'm going to reveal it now because it's you, Lamar.、Uh, <laughs> I feel so privileged. I. I I'm all ears. It's what I call my Shakespeare curse, but I think it's very Shakespearean in some ways as well.、Um, so, so you know, I had done you know Midsummer Night's Dream in in high school, and then、uh, Tempest uh, as Ariel、uh, in college, and then I、uh, and I loved reading Shakespeare. I, I should mention that in middle school. I think this is true for a lot of people. I know Sarah mentioned it as well. Like in middle school, the first I, I did read, we did read Romeo and Juliet. I think that's required for seventh graders in Seattle Public or this area, and so read Romeo and Juliet. And I remembered loving it so much. And I remember at that young age, like I didn't,、um, I felt I understood. The Shakespearean language fully,、um, and then and then later on、uh, read、uh, Julius Caesar, and so read a lot of Shakespeare、uh, on my own because I was an avid reader. And when I read all of these scripts, I felt like I completely understood what he was saying. Like I didn't know that there was such a thing as people feeling、um, intimidated by his、mm. language and the iambic pentameter and all of that stuff until later. <laughs>、um, and so. 
then uh, after college, I actually auditioned. I loved auditioning um, for any show, uh, and so I actually got cast um, um, in a number of of different uh, uh, Shakespeare pieces, uh, and but I never actually got to perform them. <laughs> so this what? is where. So 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 I got cast in. Um, Alice B. Theater, which was Seattle's gay and lesbian theater, they finally decided to do their first Shakespeare, and they decided to do Hamlet. And Victor Pappas was the director, and I'd always wanted to work with him. And he cast it. We had our first read-through. I was playing the player queen. Mm, yes. um, but I was so like, wow, I got like to be in the show. And, um, uh, and then what happened was... Uh, LSB Theater closed through some, uh, I won't go into the, 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 the stu- details here, but uh, through some unfortunate circumstances, they ended up closing. And uh, so we only got to do that first read-through rehearsal and meet the whole cast and then uh, never got to do the full production. Um, uh-huh. And then I got cast as, uh, right after that, I got cast as Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra and Brown Bag Productions. Um, Kathleen Mary was the artistic director and um, we got cast and I was like, oh my gosh, I am so blown away at getting a lead role uh, and, and, and started working on the script and uh, was just like, wow. And what a powerhouse role, um, which was, uh, which was against the type that most people may have cast me in previously in roles. Um, and so I was so looking forward to playing it. But then Kathleen's mom um, needed uh, uh, care. Um, and Kathleen's mom lived in Colorado. So Kathleen had to postpone the show. She was still fully planning on producing the show. She just needed to go take care of her mom for a bit. But then it ended up being, um, it kept on being extended and extended. And finally, she realized she just needed to move back to Colorado fully and take care of her mom. So she not only had to cancel the production after waiting literally like a year and a half, I think we're, it was... Um, and then, uh, and then basically closing down Brown Bag Productions. So, oh, wow. uh, so yeah, so we never got to do that show. So here now, two for two, I'd gotten cast in these, um, um, really great, uh, Shakespeare productions and they were the last productions. <laughs> that were slated for these two theater companies that then folded before they actually were able to do the productions. Uh-huh. So then I got cast in a in a show uh, as uh, Lady Capulet in Romeo and Juliet for Stepping Stone Productions. They were doing it where uh, the Capulets were Asian and uh, the Montagues were Russian. And... Um, Wow, um, and I actually like the cast uh, was phenomenal. I, I many people in the cast are people that I've continued to work with um, and be friends with, um, and done other projects with since then. Um, some of my most favorite people were a part of that production. Um, that one, at least, uh, 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 we got to do the production. Like we actually got to do the production, and um, uh, it was it was I I love doing the role so much like it was one of my most favorite roles I've ever done um and and because I think there's a a sexiness and a fierceness Mm. and a uh 
so many layers to Lady Capulet that, uh, that I got to show, um, in that production. Um, but, uh, unfortunately what happened, um, right after that production closed, um, there were some, again, personal circumstances that happened, um, uh, with the, the founder, um, and the, the leads of that production where they ended up deciding that they were going to close the company. Um, oh, wow. so that even though we did get to finally do the show and I got to fulfill the role, uh, it was the last production <laughs> that Stepping Stone Productions did before they folded right uh-huh. after that. I'm sorry <laughs> so I was see like, Oh my coming. gosh, <laughs> here's three Shakespearean productions. I got casted and, uh, all three theater companies folded. Um, so- with- that production. So are you are you suggesting <laughs> that whenever you do a Shakespeare play, you close down not just the house or the theater, but the entire company? So I was like, oh my gosh, is this a curse <laughs> that is following me? <laughs> and, and, you know, I love theater. I love theater so much. So shortly after, like, those three productions... I actually got hired by Seattle Shakespeare as their bookkeeper because I was looking for, I was a full-time actor for seven years where I, all I did was uh, acting. Um, but in between, you know, we all have slow times and feast or famine times. And so I was looking for some part-time work that I could fit in between shows or I could do while I was, still did shows. So mm. I actually got a uh, Seattle Shakespeare Company was looking for a part-time bookkeeper, and uh, originally it was just 10 hours a week. And I thought, oh, I could do that um, because I also have this whole other life of I'm really good with numbers and accounting and taxes and all that stuff. So I applied, got the job, and I thought, you know, so... Uh, Amy Thone would often call me in like, hey, do you want to audition for the show? You want to audition for the show? And I actually kept turning down Amy Thone to audition. I would always make up some excuse of why I wouldn't audition. And I didn't want to audition for CL Shakes because I was working oh. for CL Shakes as the bookkeeper. <laughs> I was so worried that if I did a show for CL Shakes, <laughs> it could be... <laughs> the thing, if this curse kept going, that it could be the thing that shut down the company. Something I'd like to know about, um, I guess, in speaking of curses, uh, let's talk, a, I mean, and, and the cosmos and, and you know, strange phenomena, preternatural uh, stuff. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on psychic phenomena, because I know that's something that you're curious about and interested in. Yes. And I hear you have um, some experiences with that as well. So oh, I'd love yeah. to, to hear some of yours. Um, so something that people uh, that I've been realizing um, throughout my life, there's been different points. I am what I call like a, uh, I don't even know what to call it. Like I, I, I'm not a psychic. I will just definitely make, I'm not a psychic, but I've had um, different and enough experiences in my life where I think um, I I have these psychic moments. The most concrete example I have is one time I was um, on a, a, a vacation with my husband and we were out um, looking at the stars um, and we were out in the Caribbean um, and it was a beautiful night looking at the stars and all of a sudden uh, 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 the name of a friend of mine popped into my head um, 
Um, and, and, and in my head, the question also popped in that I have to ask Dustin if he is still a virgin. Um, and like I said, it came out of completely (laughs) nowhere. So, so, uh, a few months later, I happened to be visiting New York. My friend is in New York. Um, and, uh, I often uh, stay with him when I go visit New York. He's like my little brother. Um, and so, uh, he opens the door. I knock on the door. Uh, he lives in Queens. He opens the door. And the first thing I ask him, literally, when he opened the door, we hadn't seen each other in a year. Um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, I literally, when he opens the door, I go, Dustin, are you still a virgin? Um, and he gives me this look and he's like, why? And I told him the experience I had. And he goes, what date was that? And I told him the date. And that exact, not only the exact date, but the exact time period that that question and his name popped into my head was when indeed uh, he was losing his virginity. (laughs) (laughs) And he said the really freaky thing was when that was happening. Um, uh, Like when he was right in the middle of the deed, uh, uh, the phone rang. And it turned out the phone, someone left a message and he got listened to the voicemail later. It was his mom who called no. him because she was worried that something was wrong because she woke up in the middle of the night feeling like oh. she had to call him. So oh, no. both his mom and I had a psychic moment where, where uh, he popped into it. I was like, boy, that must have been some first time for it <laughs> to have reached me in the Caribbean and your mom in Seattle when you were in New York. um um, so shifting gears in not entirely but um we're gonna use the the word vision because it sounds like you have visions um as a segue um this is a vision of another kind you spoke about to me recently that um you had a new a, a recent vision um for racial equity and your work in it yeah, I, I mean, this is um, something where, so a lot of my focus in my day job is is really looking at how can grant making become more racially equitable. And um, and obviously, none of us can, can transform anything by ourselves. So it really takes um, our whole collective of people working together to make things happen. Um, and, and FYI, the only reason why I actually ended up like literally working in an office where my role is doing grant making um, as a funder was because when I when I started off as an actor, um, realizing like, oh, well, you know, actors were only able to get opportunities if a director will hire us. Um, so then that's when I started directing. Um, and then as a director, I realized, oh, well, I only have a chance to actually hire actors if if I actually uh, uh, get hired by a theater company. And so that's when, you know, I started a theater company uh, with a group of women. And then, but we realized as uh, an Asian American centered theater company of a group of women oh, well, we really need like scripts that actually center our stories. Um, And there aren't enough uh, Asian American female playwrights that are given opportunities. So there's not as many scripts out there because um, why choose a profession that you're never going to get work in? Um, So we had to develop um, um, ways to like actually uh, create more 
scripts. So that's when I, you know, really started to write more scripts um, myself and become a playwright. Um, but then as a playwright, you realize like, oh, again, your opportunities are limited by theater companies not having enough resources to do more new work development. Um, and so that that's when I started like thinking, oh, well, who gives out money to theaters and then kind of found myself in, in uh, this grant making position. Oh, so my whole trajectory in my career has literally been trying to find who has the most agency. And then as a funder realizing like, oh, well, actually how we should be doing our roles is really learning from the people who are that we want to fund, like what would make things um, more accessible and inclusive for them. So it is kind of like a full circle coming back to really in the way that I look at grant making is really centering it back on the artists. So a lot of the work that, that uh, we do in our office is really finding out from artists, especially those who are the furthest away from access and resources and justice, what would make the work, um, uh, or how would we be able to center them and the work that they want to do and, and that that's where the funding should be centered, um, and then grow up from there. So, uh, so that's kind of like one trajectory of it, but recently I was really thinking about over this last year, over this last year, um, you know, we've been seeing a lot of the We See You White America documents that have come out where it really started with black theater artists uh, uh, who finally, because of the racialized awakening uh, that our country was having. I mean, all of this has been the history of our country. The racialization of our country is, is the history of our country. Um, um, but I think there are a lot of people who were not aware of how deeply embedded racism is in our country um, uh, until more recently. Um, and, and so in theater, um, a lot of theater has really been steeped in this corporate model structure of how to do things and corporate models are really steeped in government models and government models are really steeped in who the United States' quote-unquote founding fathers were, who happened to be mostly white men. Um, and again, they were doing it with the best of intentions, but they were doing it in a way of just what they knew. Um, and, uh, and so in terms of how we move forward, really looking at how do we work together. And really, the way we work together is the more diverse your team is to make sure that you are centering voices that maybe might not have necessarily been in the room before. Um, I'm using the Hamilton song, you know, be in the room where it happens. It's really important for us to all be in the room together. And now, to excite your curiosity, and in the spirit of infusing the world with more joy, I present to you some magic questions. If you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would it be? You know, this is something where I, um, uh, I've actually dabbled in so many different things. Uh, so I, I, I've always loved being a generalist um, in so many different things. But I will tell you, and, and the reason why I do that is because um, my mindset, uh, my whole life, is I, I always, I won't say liked, I always tried to do the things that scared me the most, 
that that has been kind of like if there was a core way that I've led my life, and that's actually how I got into acting is like the thing that scares me the most: uh, public speaking, doing anything from people, um, uh, riding roller coasters, like bungee jumping, like all of that stuff I've done because they terrified me. Um, um, and, and I felt like if I could do the thing that scared me most, then, then, uh, there'll be less things that I'll be scared about. Um, and so for me, the scariest thing that yet that I have not tried, um, is I have, uh, scuba diving, like, deep ocean water, everything. Cause I've always had fears of drowning. And the, the interesting thing with this is my dad, because he was actually a bronze medalist swimmer um, in Hong Kong um, growing up. He started training me to swim when I was very, very young. And, and, and I was a fabulous swimmer, but then two years into my training and he was training me to be in the junior Olympics. So if, if these dreams had not come up, uh, Oh, I have a very Shakespearean thought. Okay, uh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, I told you I talk in heralds. Um, um, but but when, two years into my training as a swimmer um, for the Junior Olympics, I started having these nightmares where I'd literally wake up in the middle of the night in a panic, um, thinking that I was drowning, like feeling like I was drowning. Um, and it was so visceral that I actually told my father, I, one day I just, I told him I'm not going to train anymore. I don't even want to go near the swimming pool. And I stopped. I'm not sharing this with you. I've never shared this with (laughs) anyone before. Look at what you're getting out of me. I became terrified of going anywhere near the water because of those dreams of, of, of drowning. Like people tease me to this day about like, we'll go to the beach and I will always like, like, pop my thing way back, uh, 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 and I'll read, I'll like sit and watch everybody else, but I won't go near the water. Um, so that is my biggest fear that I have yet to overcome. Um, and so would be to like do scuba diving or to go underwater, um, in that way. I want that for you. (laughs) I want you to be able to master that without death. (laughs) Um, thank you for sharing that. All right. Here is another one. So uh, you get, speaking of magical invitations, you get an invitation to an actual fairy ball. And you attend this ball, and you're having a great time. You're dancing with the fairies. It's absolutely fantastical. Uh, you, uh, The king and queen of the fairies are in attendance, Titania and Oberon. You win the favor of, of Titania, the queen of the fairies, um, and have such a great time with her. And she's taken with you that she grants you one wish. Now, fairy wishes in fairy folklore, for those who know, always come with a price. So the, the wish she grants you is that you get to be queen of the fairies for one year. But you lose a year of your own life in return. Or you can be queen of the fairies for one month, but a family member loses a month of their life. Or you can be queen of the fairies for one week, but then a stranger loses a week off of their life. And finally, or you can be queen of the fairies for one day, but you have to serve the fairy queen for a day of her choosing at random, at any point in time in your lifespan. 
Oh, wow. What a multi-layered question. <laughs> um, uh, though I, I actually know what my answer is right off the, the bat. That's um, great. Which is I would uh, choose the first option, which is to lose one year of my life in exchange for um, being uh, queen of the fairies for a year. Um, and the reason for that, and I've actually, I've actually thought about this a lot. It's, I'm really not morbid. I just, uh, I just do a lot of self-reflection all the time about a lot of stuff oh that's great which is you know i i uh and it's actually very um there's a lot of synergy synchronicity in that question because i was actually just thinking about this 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 long weekend over labor day weekend about um what is the purpose of life about you know longevity um um like would i feel satisfied with my life if if i was to die tomorrow um um or if my life was shortened um in order to be able to do some things that i really want to do <laughs> and that might be risky like i actually thought about all of this um and i realized like what is the point of living longer if you can't like really live life and try things that you've always wanted to try or do things that you never thought you could do. And, and, and it became really clear to me that, you know, I actually told my husband this, I said, I think, you know, there's, there's things that I want to do, but I actually think um, in order to do this, I might be cutting short my life to do it. And so I told him like my, my family's longevity in terms of my mom's side is in their nineties. Um, mm. um, my family's longevity on my dad's side is only in their 70s. So I've always had a picture in my head um, that I would probably live to somewhere in my 80s. And I told my husband, so um, there's some things I really want to do. And uh, but but I'm just telling you right up now that by doing them, I might end up shortening my life. And, you know, I weighed it and I'm actually okay with that because I'd rather live to the fullest and do everything um, that I want to, even if it meant knowing that I would have a shorter life. Because what is the what is the point of living longer if you're always playing it safe? Quality of life, absolutely. What a beautiful outlook, Kathy. <laughs> um, that brings us to our final question, which is, when you die, because we all will, if people forget everything about you, what's the one thing you want them to remember? So, and, and I did think about this too. Um, I really thought about like, there's a lot of things like, oh, you know, that like the whole bio thing and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's one thing. But if I really was was really truthful, like the moments that have brought me the the greatest, like where I can truly say like I was so happy. Um, well, I'm okay. I'm going to give a both answer here. Um, personally, the moments that have brought me the most happiness is when I've been um, with, uh, and sometimes it's been with uh, very close friends, and sometimes it's been with complete strangers, where we will just just talk about a million different things that that could be about nothing and can be about everything at the same time. Like there's a lot of conversations I have where it really, truly, my whole focus of life is not just about racial equity, but it's just about what it means to be joyful or just telling each other jokes that are, um, that are funny. And, and, and so like my favorite memory right now is like, like, and there's been many moments of this where just with a group of friends where, um, um, we will literally just spend the whole night just laughing and talking and just riffing off of each other um, and just realizing like, you know, I 
I feel so alive in this moment that uh, that I have found. So I'm going to get emotional now. That I have found human beings that I have just like like it just purely in the moment where we just appreciate and are so joyful to be in each other's presence that nothing else really, really matters. And that if I die, knowing that there are other people who might think like that that memory meant as much to them as it did to me, that that would make me, that I would love to be just remembered by individual people in that way. That one time or multiple times I've been uh, uh, in a place with Kathy where we just are goofy and silly um, and, and playing board games or laughing and joking and just sharing time and space with each other. We just had the pleasure of each other's company. That would be what I would love to be remembered by more than anything else by individual people. Um, now, if I did have like a very aspirational goal, it would be that <laughs> some of the things that I've been working on in terms of racial equity um, um, might actually uh, make things better um, for people in a systemic, structural way. Um, that would be great. Um, but, but, but yeah, so those are the both and things. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kathy, you are such a gem. It has been truly magical um, listening to your stories. Um, thank you so much for sharing your heart, your your joie de vivre, your um, your philosophies. Thank um, you, Lamar. You're welcome, Kathy. Thank you for listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self. The series is a project of Seattle Shakespeare Company. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's productions and programs, please visit seattleshakespeare.org. We'd love to hear from you. Seattle Shakespeare is located on lands taken from the Duwamish, Stillaguamish, Muckleshoot, Suquamish, and All Coast Salish people and we pay respect to them as this region's original storytellers. The music you hear in this episode is provided and composed by Stefan Dorsey. Artwork for our series was created by Marla Bonner. I'm host and producer Lamar Legend, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us your hands if we be friends, and Lamar shall restore amends.